I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's James Jacobs, and we're talking all about the Symphony No. 3 by Louise Farranc. She was a French composer and pianist, and her final Symphony No. 3 is a work that deserves your attention. James and I get into the challenges and expectations she faced, the musical details, and what makes this symphony stand out. Plus, stay with us to the end as we read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. Louise Faronk wrote three symphonies in the 1840s, and we're going to talk about the third one. It's one that has been performed very little, like the others, and although it's being played more now, it's still seldom being performed. It doesn't even have its own Wikipedia page, but it is a fantastic work that absolutely deserves your attention. So we're going to guide you through some of our favorite moments, uh, background on the symphony, and more. But first, just a little bit about Faronk. She was born in 1804 died in 1875, French composer. She was an extraordinary pianist, a piano professor at the Paris Conservatory for 30 years, where she was also writing and premiering music, but she was not being paid the same as her male counterparts uh, for the first, I think, half of her tenure there. And then after um, some more performances and premieres of her works, they could not ignore her demands any longer to be paid equally. So she did have more of a reputation as this pianist than a composer early on. And there was a lot stacked against her, right, with, of course, not just sexism, but the state of music at the time in France, a big focus on virtuosic um, small chamber music and big grand opera symphonies were not very popular, of course, at this time. So we don't have a lot of symphonies from French composers. And that was against her as well, because as a woman, she could play the piano and she could perform and she could write music. But writing big symphonies was something that was seen as more... It was not looked well upon, was it? No, it wasn't. You know, it's it's interesting because I was thinking about this because I'm... You know, I'm of a, I'm of a certain age uh, right now, and I've seen some cycles in my time. And it's interesting, like right now, I, you know, I see the kids just discovering music of the '60s and '70s, and I see certain uh, trends in fashion and come back in entertainment. And uh, this was the case in in France as well in the mid 19th century, where the hot composer was Beethoven, 20 years after he died, and uh, and and yet. They seem to be just discovering him. And so that's when Parisians went to an orchestral concert in the 1840s. They, you know, they expected to hear a Beethoven symphony and other Germanic music from the early part of the century. And so if you're a composer who's trying to write a work that on that program uh, to complement the Beethoven symphony, uh, you're expected to basically write music in that same ilk, that same genre, which is um, that's a huge step backwards. Remember, at this time, we'd already had Berlioz, we'd already had Chopin, we'd already had Schumann. So composers didn't really want to take that step back. But they, but if you're a French person and a composer living at that time and place, that's what you had to deal with. And Farang had to deal with not only that, but also as 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 you mentioned, systemic uh, sexism. And the expectation of being a woman, and as anybody who's not a white male can tell you today, it's like you have to you have to color within the lines. Uh, you can't be an iconic. You can't afford to be an iconoclast. You have to come up with another way of 
asserting your voice. This also presents a dilemma for us talking about Farag's music today because we tend to grow up with this idea of the canon. That's one of the first things that you are introduced to when studying classical music are the, you know, the dozen or so great names, you know, Beethoven, Bach, Schubert, et cetera, et cetera. They become reference points mm-hmm. for every how you talk about all other music. Yeah. And this is this really puts composers who aren't in that canon at a huge disadvantage. And it's not fair, and it's also not fair to us as listeners because no. we're depriving ourselves yes. of some really great listening experiences. So so at, throughout this program, we are occasionally going to have to re- reference Beethoven and Mozart and the rest uh, because that's what Farang herself did, and that's what her listeners did. But we're really going to try to encourage you, not only in, for Farang's music, but for anybody, anyone's music, to really take it on its own terms and to really listen for what it has to say. Um, I mean, everybody had some sort of limitation. Everybody had some sort of challenge to mm-hmm. to to come up against, and uh, and so we have to embrace those challenges and uh, adopt new vocabularies every time. So, so uh, this is going to be an adventure for all of us as we explore with as fresh ears as possible the music of Louise Ferrand. Yes. And what for me has a lot of weight to this symphony or kind of importance was the fact that you think of a composer when they sit down to write a symphony, especially at this time with the, all of the lack of technology and efficiencies and advantages, advantages we have today, that's an extraordinary amount of time and effort you have to put in. So if you're a French composer and you're writing a, a piece of music that you're not 100% sure is going to be played or even loved because it doesn't quite fit into this canon that you just um, described as well, it makes it all that more kind of important in my mind that she sat down and wrote this. She was quite dedicated then. And she completed this third one in 1847. She did hear it performed uh, more than once, I believe, but it wasn't something that was performed a lot, um, especially in her lifetime. So jumping into the the first movement right away, the opening kind of grabs you, this call in the winds, and you feel a bit tonally nebulous. It's, you're not quite sure, well, what key is this in? What's going on with the harmony? And then there is this transition into a faster uh, tempo, like an allegro, and the transition is quite something. It's like we're channeling all this energy and opposing rhythms and she is taking us to a singular point where it all kind of blows out with this big um, statement in the strings. Yeah, there's a way in which Fanning sort of dispenses with formalities. You know, uh, usually a composer will sort of have a big opening chord before the plaintive oboe solo, and she just goes right into the plaintive oboe solo. And then in the transition, there's usually some kind of anchor, and Fanning is sort of trusting us to sort of go along with her for the ride as you know there's no guardrails you know there's, she's just no it feels like no guardrails on that transition that's what it feels like. it really doesn't you know you don't know where the beat is at first you know we don't you don't, it's like the violins are always off the beat and uh, and then there is a sense of arrival mm-hmm. and um in a theme that here i go that she borrowed from a beethoven cello sonata but even if she did that deliberately Intellectual property was had a different uh, meaning back then, and you could say that she saw the 
orchestral, the symphonic uh, potential of this theme, and that she, and she took it to a different place. She took it to another. She took it to another level. And and one of the things to bear in mind about uh, Fanang is that she didn't write much orchestral music compared to the amount of chamber music that she wrote because she simply didn't have access to orchestras. And um, and you can sense that not because her sense of orchestration is anything less than if I can use the word masterful, um, but you know, she's very assured. She has a sense of uh, how to use uh, different combinations of instruments uh, together in a way that sounds like extended chamber music that will sound like, for example, her famous nonette uh, or, or work for nine instruments. And it has that same sort of feeling of like a mass um, sort of chamber, you know, dialogue among all the instruments and not just dominated by the first violins. It's not dominated by the first violins. That That's exactly right, because when you start with this winds and you have some more wind elements here early on, now, if you like the wind section, you're going to love this symphony oh, because it is so fantastic for the winds. And the chamber music aspect you're talking about, it's so present in the winds. You hear, you'll hear times in this symphony where the winds are just entirely alone, just by themselves. And the way she does it, it feels more elevated and complete rather than this is just a transition from one theme or one section of the movement to the next. It sounds like there's a much bigger statement being made than just, oh, we're going from here to here now. And she also does really interesting things with bringing in subito dynamics. Subito is what you see in your music, which means suddenly. So if, you, if you're playing along and you're playing piano, then you'll hit a note that says subito F. That means subito forte. You're suddenly um, loud on that. And she brings those elements in with unison lines in the strings that jumps out of the texture. And it gives it a bit of a, for me, a bit of a sinister kind of uncomfortable feeling it does you feel like there's something sinister going on underneath um, and I just love it and one element that adds to that sense of of sinisterness is the fact that she uses timpani but no trumpets and that is that's actually very unusual Well, it really goes back to military bands where mm -hmm. trumpets were basically playing the upper partials, the upper resonances of the timpani note. They were one instrument in a way of of sort of, you know, having these little military tattoos in the middle of symphonies. And I mean, Beethoven experimented with it a little bit, but um, to do that in this work that feels kind of like a chamber symphony and yet it's the timpani that pretty much single-handedly makes it into a large orchestral work and to have this one instrument with two drums expand exponentially the sound of the orchestra the feel of the orchestra the symphonic grandeur of the orchestra it's a it's an extraordinary original step and there's two things i notice um with this i like that you bring up the orchestration is is masterful because it really is there's just two horns in the brass section, no trumpets, there's no trombones, there's no tuba, there's the wind section, the, the full wind section, and the strings. So with just two horns, she's creating this dark sound that is not muddy. It's dark, but it's rich. 
And I think you can achieve that by also not including some of the lower instruments like like the trombone, for instance, because that instrument itself is actually kind of bright in its timbre. It's um, it's cylindrical, meaning from the beginning of the instrument to the end, it's mostly the same diameter until the bell, um, the flare part where the sound comes out, basically. And it gives it a brighter sound. So even omitting some of those lower instruments, it still makes it sound dark, but a little bit more, I don't know, rich. It's just not muddy. It's a really interesting sound that you don't hear in too many other symphonies. And by taking away the trumpet and the timpani, we'll hear in other movements where it gives much more authority and weight, I think, to the timpani. Because when it comes in, and I like how you described it, it's like an extension from the timpani going down. Well, that's really something that really struck me about this piece is that it's it sounds like an orchestra. It sounds like a symphony, but but she approaches it from someone who has written all this chamber music. Like every part is important. You know, there's not a lot of the kinds of doublings that you might see. Uh, the, you know, even the cellos and basses have two very distinct parts and very distinct roles. And it, it's just one of the many extraordinary aspects of this work. And getting into the second movement, this is such a beautiful, slow, symphonic movement. Right from the beginning, you'd think, and almost all, and so many, I would say the vast majority of symphonies before this point, it's a nice introduction, beautiful string section. And then after the string section, then uh, the wind section would pick it up and for a little transition. But here, it's the winds straight away and the strings that come back afterwards. When I listen to this movement, uh, John, I, you know, I have to say that it sort of makes irrelevant all the arguments over whether this is derivative music or not. You know, like, yes, it's in a it's in an earlier style, but it's by choice. And, you know, within the constraints that she had, it just carries you along on this beautiful sonorities and, and gorgeous melodies. I like that. It carries you on because... It does carry you on, and it's this pastoral sound that would have been very familiar, a lot of you know drone sounds in the in the horns and bassoons. But the difference is, and a reason why us as musicians are kind of geeking out so much on the sound that Faronk is making is because just as musicians hearing things done in a slightly different way or more clever or maybe even more intuitive way, it's like a fireworks in your ears almost, the way it's just so pleasing to listen to. And it sort of goes against the grain. Uh, I think this is another thing that makes that makes her unique in the context of the the history of music. Because you know, when we think of the development of music from the early nineteenth century Beethoven to the early twentieth century, and people like Mahler and Strauss, we think of everything getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And here is an example of someone demonstrating that less can be more, which goes against everything we think of when we think of the narrative of music in the 19th century. She's making these practical things. She's being economical, and she's getting the most out of limited resources. And there is a way in which uh, this symphony, and again, I'm making this reference uh, for a reason. Uh, It goes back to our earlier symphony in G minor, Mozart's 40th. 
the original draft of Mozart's Fortieth Symphony, he 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 originally planned to use four horns, and then he realized that he could do the same thing with do, using just two horns, but in two different keys, using different crooks on the on the natural horns. And that's exactly what Fanning does in this symphony as well. Uses two horns, natural horns, in two different keys, and and yet with just those two horns, creating this incredible sound, this incredible array of of colors and power in the orchestra and so in this case looking backwards was a source of of inventiveness and sort of like oh this is a good idea i can so it's not it's not an act of nostalgia it's an act of 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 sort of looking back and seeing the tools that she could use for her purposes and that's what being an artist is it's not about completely I mean, sometimes it is completely creating something new from nothing, but what an artist does is take things that they see and what's around them and change things around to create something new, to show you a different aspect of something. Like, for instance, in this movement, it's expansive and it's rich, and then you have that um, a moment in the timpani, and the mo- when it comes out, it has so much more weight and impact by itself like this than if it had been led in by the trumpet, for instance, you know, still being tied with that. So she's doing all that in, in both movements so far. And this is one you really just sit back and enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful movement. And it's, um, as I said, it, it kind of like any expectations you have going into it um, become irrelevant as it just as you just get, you know, carried away. And we'll get into the third and fourth movement right after this. Classical Breakdown is made possible by WETA Classical. Listen to the music anytime, day or night at wetaclassical.org or on the WETA Classical app. It's free in the App Store. So we get into the third movement scherzo now, and for the time, I think this was a rather typical scherzo within the form that would have been expected, right? Yes, and uh, because the scherzo was the last addition to the symphony because it had been a dance movement, you know, uh, it had been a minuet, and then it was Haydn and then Beethoven who created this thing called the scherzo, the joke, um, which didn't always mean something humorous. It could also mean something, I guess what you could say is a character piece where the orchestra could kind of let off steam in a way. It was sort of a, sort of some kinetic energy before getting into um, the business of wrapping things up in the finale. It's the most modern of all of the symphonic movements. And fittingly, I, I would say that this scherzo in this symphony is the most modern sounding of, of all four movements, I, w- I would say. I don't know if you would agree. Uh, where she draws on more recent influences, like you, you hear a bit of Mendelssohn, I think, uh, in, the, in the very beginning. But, um, but again, I think the comparisons quickly become... I mean, there are references to Mendelssohn's scherzo from Mitzari's Dream and the scherzo from Beethoven's Eroica, but but I think, in a way, those those references are instructive because, you know, by the time you're halfway through the scherzo, you realize, oh, it's it's all phalanx. It's yeah. it's really uh, it's really her putting her spin on on this form, and this is the form where the composer had the most freedom, I think, uh, to sort of experiment and do different things because it wasn't as set in stone as the sonata form of the first movement or what a rhapsodic slow movement could be. And she makes the most of that. 
And I think she brings in a lot of elements from the other movements kind of in distilled form here. We have moments where the strings are you know, jumping out in unison to really emphasize something, or sometimes in my case, it startles me, uh, which I like, though, in, in music. And thinking back to the opening of the symphony where we talked about that transition that was so interesting with the strings and, and winds on different rhythms, um, a lot of offbeats, and I hear in this movement that same singing oboe over top of these really, really busy strings that it feels like we're calling right back to the first movement. And then we have what feels like some real big nods to 18th century music with these pastoral horn calls. Dun, da, dun, da, dun. It's like half of a horn call that you expect, um, for instance, in Mozart's string quartet, the horn quartet, right? And she's bringing these elements back into here, and it's just... Um, Really interesting what she does with the the color and harmony. I think this movement is where it gets a little more adventurous in that regard than the others. Some really fantastic, rich color and um, harmonies coming out, especially in the winds. There's a moment where the winds, again, you like the winds, you're going to like this. They're completely alone. And underneath in the strings, I think it might just be violins, it's pizzicato, but it must be written so soft in the part. It has a different sound. If you think of movements of symphonies like Tchaikovsky that have a whole pizzicato string movement in them, here underneath the winds, it's almost like you can't hear it, but you can feel it. And it gives the texture of the strings, almost sounds to me like like insects crawling around, just the way the pizzicatos are all mixing together. Really, really, really soft at one point in this movement. Jumping into the fourth movement, the the opening this, uh, for me, it has a lot of ballet-like qualities. I think the French have this uncanny way of depicting dances, especially in the strings, where it's supposed to sound kind of fun, but it sounds a little, I don't want to say sinister again, but it's kind of like delirious. It's this nice little dance, but something sounds off about it. Yeah, it's very, very... Creepy. Uh, it's very structured. It's it's creepy. and uh, But there you definitely get this sense of gesture. This movement probably has the most clear model of any of the four movements, and in this case, the, the finale of Mozart's 40th Symphony, which, again, is an example of, of really extreme emotion and passion within these very strict classical restraints. And so you get beneath the sheen of this very polished surface, you know, these real human emotions and, and passions that were sort of crying out, but but being forced into these, these straight lines, and which in itself is a source of drama right there. And uh, I think that speaks to Fanning's own condition um, as creative, as a creative artist at that time, and so it's at the one time perhaps the most strictly classical conservative of the four movements, but it's also the one that I think most deals with 
the key of G minor as a key, a, a stormy key, a key of mm. extreme passion. Speaking of structure, just to kind of compare and contrast between 100 years before this and now, in the 18th century, thinking Mozart and Haydn, the symphony had a very structured, big first movement. That's where your big ideas and musical development and problem solving was taking place. That slowly changed, of course, well, maybe not so slowly, with Beethoven. His symphony number no. nine kind of it blew up so many expectations for, for the symphony. And we start to see the transition of the fourth movement being the big movement you lead to. That's the kitchen sink of everything. But Faranc is going back to the previous uh, century, which we call you know the classical period, roughly 1750 to 1800-ish, and borrowing from that with the a bigger first movement here and a fourth movement that's quite intense and passionate, like you said, but is on a smaller or it's I don't you don't want to say it's not less developed in terms of like that's bad or something. It's just she's saying more with less. Yes, absolutely. You know, like the other movements, even though it it has all these influences, it actually reveals Farang's actual originality. Because, you know, being an original composer is not just about writing stuff that nobody has written. In fact, you, you can't really do that. No. It's about being an original listener. It's about what you hear when you hear other music and what you pick up on and what and what you absorb and the kind of things that you absorb. And uh, so in this movement, particularly, we hear what Fanning gets when she listens to Mozart, what she when she listens to Beethoven, and what what aspects of it are most striking to her that and most personal to her. And uh, and that really comes out in this so by seeing the past through her prism it's almost like a postmodern effect and it ends up being strikingly original oh, that's very interesting that's a, i really like that um that perspective of this cuz it does make it original there's another thing she does that it really struck me the first time i i heard it of course in music you can repeat things for effect you can repeat something the same you can repeat it a little bit different she kind of going still in the in the realm of this movement is passionate. It can be creepy at times, seems like this delirious dance. She has this moment where she repeats a figure, and it doesn't seem like this figure needs to be repeated. If this was 100 years earlier, she may not have written it this way, but it repeats more than it should, and it sounds very intimidating. And for everyone listening, I've, I've had to, you know, make things listening friendly. So the actual dynamic contrast of that when you hear it in a performance or when you listen to some recordings, it's quite extreme. Yes, it, it really is. And uh, you almost feel like just as we were talking about how the first movement had no guardrails mm -hmm. and this movement is all guardrails and it's almost makes it scarier. So, but it's also, um, no escape. <laughs> yeah. There's no escape. And it is a very theatrical gesture really to, to bring this music and all the, all the aspects of this music that, that seem to be almost out of control, particularly in the first and third movements together into something that is very controlled to like, Okay, you want control? Here's some control. And you get this almost militaristic sense of of you know, of this repetition that like, okay, be careful what you wish for. And uh it it really brings a, a sort of fatalistic end to this work. 
So many things are happening. It's It can be turbulent. Contrasting ideas are brought in and out um, rather quickly here. And she's pushing us out of our comfort zone at times. But when she pushes us out of our comfort zone, she then also offers relief, again, at times, in the wind section. Yes, absolutely. And also, it's, it's, it's interesting that we're talking about her pushing us out of her comfort zone because when you contrast the way she does it to the way that contemporaries like Berlioz or Chopin or Liszt um, did it, it's much more subtle. But it's all the more powerful uh, for that because, you know, you don't expect it. You're sort of lulled into complacency because it seems like a throwback at first. So we're like, oh, we're going back to the era of, of powdered wigs and and, uh, and Beethoven and, and Mozart. And, but uh, Fennec is not nostalgic at all. And that's, that's, not, that's not her game at all. And the audiences she was playing this for were. That's, that's a whole different thing. And, and I think this was sort of her way of kind of well, do you want the way it really was? <laughs> it sounds want... like she's checking the boxes needed to to get this played. I think it was actually premiered alongside Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. So she's checking off the boxes to make sure that it's acceptable to um, the school, the conservator, whoever, I guess, who would be um, performing it in this context with Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. But she's checking off a lot more boxes on her own list of all the stuff she's putting in here. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a very good way of putting it. Unfortunately, this was her final symphony. After this, she found much more success with chamber music for a variety of reasons. One of them, I believe, of course, being um, sexism. And it's robbed, of course, her and the listeners because we don't have a symphony number four. No. We don't have other large-scale orchestral works from her. So my recommendation is if you haven't heard this symphony before, we're going to put links of performances on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. Take a listen, but don't let it be the only time you hear it. I always recommend listen to something, listen to it a couple times even, put it down for a few weeks, set an alarm on your phone or a reminder a month later, hey, listen to Farong Symphony Number no. 3 again. You're going to hear it completely differently the second time. You're going to hear things you never even heard the first time. I think there's something, you know, it's interesting because it just occurred to me that I think there is something there is something about sort of tragic about Farang's story, even though she lived to be 70, 71. There does seem to be a bit of an unfinished life there. I mean, I think part of the reason why she stopped you know, composing altogether was out of grief for a family member. And there was there was a sense that even being the most successful woman musician of her time still came with all these constraints and all these these opportunities. And and part of that was as as we mentioned was because of the woman and part of that was the time itself was just a tragic time. It was a it was a tragic, oppressive time and place to be in. And so this is what we've got. And so in her body of work, that might be an incomplete portrait of who she was. And we have to do perhaps a little bit more work to really get at who she was by, by listening closely. But that's what makes it all the more poignant and all the more rewarding to listen to a composer that that we have to go to and not and isn't always being pushed at us. We enter into her mindset and we are rewarded with this really unique mind and unique uh, creative spirit. And it's uh, worth the journey, every step of it. 
Well, thank you so much, James, for sharing with us your insight on this symphony. Of course, again, we'll have more information on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And now it's time to read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. Now, James, this is a long one. This comes from a user called Climb the Tree and Break a Leg. Oh, wow. I hope that is not I hope from, that's not literal. Yeah, I hope that's not an, a, a dark story. They gave us five stars on Apple Podcasts and left a rather lengthy but really greatly uh, detailed review. They said, I love it. I play flute and saxophone, and it was incredible to listen to your flute episode. I learned so much, and it allowed me a new perspective. I really, really appreciate the excerpts of the pieces you play while you're talking about it. It helps tremendously. Maybe you could do a saxophone episode. I know it's not a traditional classical instrument, which is why I think it would make an informative and hopefully humorous episode. Your station is my go-to for after-band practices driving home, and it always calms me down, especially when my anxiety is high. Having the news sprinkled in there from NPR is amazing, too. Thank you, and I hope this review helps your popularity and status. Well, thank you so much. Climb the tree and break a leg. Wow, yes. They've got quite a bit to say. And I, again, I hope that you didn't actually break a leg. But mm-hmm. uh, I, um, Unless they're a musician. Unless they're a musician, yes. And if you'd like to leave a review please do so in your podcast app and maybe we'll read it here. And if you have any comments, questions, or ideas for episodes, you can send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thank you so much for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical. 